0: Hello and welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from UNSHAW.net Episode 15 Standardise and Centralise ICT Teachers often tell me that they aren't great at technology. I never really understand this because in all aspects of their life, they use technology all the time. I mean, I can see them scrolling through emails on their phones, talking about things they've bought online, everything from clothes to holidays. I see them taking selfies and sharing them on Instagram and other social media. I see them researching news online, watching films on Netflix. And most of them can do way more than I can. (laughs) For example, if you asked me to download a film from the internet, I actually don't know how to do it. Now, I'd probably have a bash at it, but I definitely wouldn't be able to do it without googling how to do it. Like, in reality, all teachers these days are well adept at using technology. I mean a number of years ago we used to have a concept called the digital divide it was a it was a concept really that there was the pre um the time i suppose a divide between two age groups where one age group was uh, the pre-internet generation and there was the uh, next generation it was the post-internet generation and there was there was definitely um, a problem there for uh, then but that's finished now or anybody who's in the teaching prof- uh, profession is on the other side of the digital divide um I suppose in reality, um, what I think what they might mean is they don't really know how to use technology in the context of education, in the context of pedagogy. They haven't discovered the power that technology can actually add to a lesson. And the thing is, they aren't alone. The vast majority of teachers that use technology aren't actually using it to enhance the pedagogy. They tend to use it as a replacement to something that, was, that had already been done before, So, for example, we look at interactive whiteboards. They were simply, they weren't, they were just simply a replacement for blackboards. They didn't, they didn't particularly enhance them pedagogically. Now, they enhanced them by making them, uh, making them more cool, I suppose, and shiny. But they really simply didn't change the um, the pedagogy. Um, In fact, you'd nearly argue that they made pedagogy worse. Um, And I'm going to give you a quick example of what I mean by that, uh, just to give you a little bit of a context. And um, these days in schools, okay, it's very very rare to see a teacher, um, at the top of a room with the classes seated in rows, and that didactic, or I think it's called, a didactic kind of um way of teaching the whole class methodologies. But that was very much the norm when I was in school thirty odd years ago, um, and you know they th- this was um just after um corporal punishment was was banned and so teachers uh ways of of discipline and i suppose in a way was shouting or embarrassing or humiliating and all that kind of stuff and one really good way of doing that was to um bring um children up to the blackboard uh to do some sort of a, a, a puzzle now i remember one of my first experiences of junior infants i'm remembering it now actually in a previous episode i i remembered some uh some days i had in junior infants and I, i'd forgotten about this one but uh we had a lovely uh teacher in junior infants uh mrs holland and she was uh drawing in chalk um apple trees and she was putting apples on these trees so it was nice these lovely um i, I didn't know how to draw a tree but one thing i did know how to do is i knew my numbers oh yeah I, I as you might have heard in one of my previous episodes i was really hot at maths so i knew how to write my numbers because my mom had taught me now the only problem was that um she had taught me to draw the number six in a kind of a non-standard way it kind of looked like a lowercase b rather than the six the curvy six that you uh, would be w- uh, well used to um but mrs holland knew Must have known I was pretty good at maths because I could see that she was bringing children up to the blackboard and she might have been drawing one or two or three, maybe four apples on the board. But when it came to my turn, she drew six apples and up I went. I don't know if I strutted up there, I probably didn't, but I went up there knowing all I had to do was draw that number six that I knew how to draw, and I did, and the class burst out laughing because I had written the letter B not a number 6 now I'm only telling you this because that sort of practice had well ended by the early part of the 21st century children weren't brought up to whiteboards or blackboards to uh, do things They uh, to do things but as soon as the interactive whiteboard came along th- this practice came again kids were given this magic pen which isn't very different to a piece of chalk except it's electronic and they were asked to do all uh, to, to do to go up and do all sorts of things um that were just became really bad practice um at that time it went back to those bad days of 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 sort of bringing up children um, even if they were really enthusiastic about going up uh, to use the magic pen, but ultimately doing the same stuff. it does. It isn't great pedagogy. And uh, and effectively what you have, I mean, even at its best, let's say forget the humiliation kind of end of things, what you're doing in that practice, right, is you've got one child doing the learning up the board and 29 children si- sitting down passively, enga- uh, basically back best passively engaging in the lesson. They don't learn anything. So effectively, it isn't great pedagogy because you're only really focusing on one child, and uh, the rest of the class aren't doing anything. So ultimately, the interactive whiteboard, I suppose, it wasn't, and, and some, in some cases still isn't used very well. But what the power what is the power of the interactive whiteboard? You know I mean it's not a completely useless tool. I, I, I'm being critical, of course of it. but what does it do that couldn't be done without it? And it's actually not the interactivity, the eye bit of the interactive whiteboard. In fact, you don't need the interactive bit of the interactive whiteboard. It's a handy thing for the teacher, maybe when they're uh, drawing things up, but it's not a handy thing for children. The The thing that is pedagogically great is the fact that it's a big screen. And what it can do is it can actually virtually bring children anywhere in the world and see anything that exists. It's kind of like, I don't know if any of you remember Bosco, but you remember the, the magic door uh, in Bosco? What you do is you knock, n- knock on the door, knock, knock any more, see what's through the magic door, if I, I think that's, uh, I'm, uh, th- that's how it went. And when the door opened, well, you always ended up in Dublin Zoo. But I mean, apart from that, sometimes you didn't. You ended up somewhere else behind this door. It was a magic door. And really what the interactive whiteboard does is it, um, it, bring, it can bring children places where they haven't been. So for example, um, if you're learning about the Burren, in County Clare and you don't live on the burn in County Clare the best way to experience the burn in County Clare is to go there but you can't do that in reality so what you can do is you can bring the burn to the class and you can watch a video of a, maybe a drone going over certain parts of it and stopping it in places and getting children to look at it you know th- it, th- this is, it's not as good as going to the burn but certainly you couldn't do that without the interactive whiteboard I mean you, you know at, at the time to- back in the olden days this is before technology existed in the classroom, you pretty much had to imagine it or look at pictures, black and white pictures in old textbooks, which didn't really give you give you as much. It really was it is a big enhancement. Another example is in visual arts classes. Um, do you remember uh, maybe some of you are old enough to remember that if you wanted to give a stimulus of a piece of art you had to go um you had to buy all these little postcards of pieces of art uh, of, of famous pieces of art or find prints and, and and store them and hang them up on the, in classrooms nowadays all you do is google an image of any artist of any painting and it's there on the screen and you can be used as a stimulus you can discuss it with the class and it's big enough that everybody can see it so technology i mean uh, the interactive whiteboard gave us this and it's a really really important tool and I'm I actually endorse not the interactive bit but certainly the screen a big screen in a class anyway we have a huge choice of technology out there but the want to ask the question is are we using it properly and if not why not my belief is that we completely messed up introducing technology into the education system and every single plan including the present one is failing to promote the power of technology However, not only did it mess up pedagogy, it also left the door open for companies, not the education system, to set the agenda in terms of hardware and software in schools. Now, we have a landscape where schools are like snowflakes, and I don't mean the millennium types, No, I mean that no two schools have the same technology set up. What we desperately need to do is tidy this up and ensure that schools utilize the same technologies within reason and they're supported centrally so if I were the Minister for Education I would centralize and standardize ICT in primary schools before I begin my argument just I, I many of you might know this already but just to give you a cu- couple of words on my own background um, I I didn't start off in teaching uh, straight out of college I did a computer science degree and um, I i i had a good background in technology i've I've used I used technology uh, from when i was a child and i've been training teachers in in the use of technology for almost 20 years and on shaw.net the website behind this podcast started off life as an educational technology uh, blog and there's still years and years of articles about technology on the site if you want to look for it Um and i I, i'm just saying that to give you some context i i i'm I'm really interested in technology and education i did my master's um based on technology and education where i tried to prove that a computer was a better teacher than a teacher and you'll be glad to know that it isn't um but um I really, really do have a keen interest in uh, in educational technology, and always keep a close eye on what's going on. Um, for those of you uh, who may not have uh, listened to a previous episode of uh, the podcast, it's episode three, which is also based on technology. I think it's important as well to contextualise the history of technology in Ireland and why it is where it is uh, now. And as I said in episode three, we're going to. I just want to briefly look through it. Syntax error after syntax error. Sorry, that's very geeky. Um, so uh, just uh, i'm not going to go through the, the the long version of what i what i did in episode three you can do that but basically um if one can trace the uh, the roots of technology and education back to 1973 which is a long long time ago it's, uh, so over almost uh 45 uh, actually over 45 years ago and uh, it really although there was um technology in use sort of then it was really in the 80s um Uh, there were bbc micros around a little bit in the 90s when the pcs became popularized. it really wasn't until 1997 so about 25 years later with the it 2000 project uh, from the government and every school uh, uh, at this it uh, it 2000 project got a uh, a new a new computer in their staff room um but and basically then there was training provided Uh, and unfortunately this is where the first big mistake was made they were trained they trained teachers not in pedagogy but they trained teachers how to word process i i don't really understand that uh but anyway that's that aside um and basically the problem then after that was there was no other plan and by 2005 so eight years later uh, a report from the inspectorate uh said that only four percent of teachers use technology in their classroom um it on a daily basis which is very very low obviously as you know considering that today i would say about 100 percent of teachers use technology in some way in their classrooms every day most classrooms certainly had a computer at the back of the room but it was usually covered by a table as i've said before the big big moment came in 2008 at the ippn conference and it as i i, I was called it Uh, i've been uh, calling it the trojan horse of technology and education it was the interactive whiteboard and it basically changed everything uh, if you looked at computer use pre-2008 versus computer use post-2008 you wouldn't believe the difference and basically um uh, the IPPN invited a company Prime Ed, uh, at the time to showcase the interactive whiteboard to principals and principals went nuts going I must have this magic board and I must have it now and basically for the next uh, five to six years every school in the country did whatever they could do to get an interactive whiteboard in every single classroom because the government weren't funding them they did everything to get them and I mean everything everything <laughs> the amount of cake sales the amount of who wants to be a thousandaire probably not who wants to be, or whatever the popular show was at the time uh to get them was unreal however the problem with this was the interactive whiteboard wasn't something on the government's agenda and um, in fact the um Agency the N- i think they're, oh gosh it's amazing how you forget I think they were called the NCTE they're now called PDST Technology and Education I'm, de- I'm pretty sure it was the NCTE at the time was was uh was telling teachers um was advising teachers not to get interactive whiteboards it's weird how right they were really, to be honest with you although they were wrong in other ways um but uh that they were better off not getting interactive boards but getting just projectors but ultimately the, it was too late the tide was too fast and everybody wanted them and unfortunately what this meant was the government or the uh, technology agencies in the government were behind what schools were actually doing um or ahead depending on your context but definitely behind what was happening and what it did was it let companies lead the agenda for educational technology not the department of education um since then very little has happened um in terms of funding schools definitely had to get networked and uh when and it about 2009 the internet was available in all schools um and um various roadmaps from the government were developed and all of them failed various procurement plans were developed and they were completely ignored by schools and basically by 2010 no two schools looked the same and ICT was a completely haphazard thing The recession basically uh, killed off all the smaller businesses as well. Uh, But the recession also lost schools, one of its most important resources, which was the ICT advisors in the education centers. Um, And this was a terrible tragedy. The other thing in education um, was the drop of Microsoft's monopoly on education. Apple came along with an iPad. Google came up with Google Apps for Education or G Suite now. And schools had new choices for hardware, laptops, tablets, Chromebooks, they had Microsoft Office and Google apps, and it made things really complicated. Um, and certainly in the last couple of years, um, there are lots, there's lots more choice and lots more companies vying for the education space. And the trouble is, there's no proper advice at government level for what to do, because they all do their own thing well. Um, unfortunately, for about 10 years, there was zero investment in technology and education, and um, after that, there were one-off grants. Um, in fairness, uh, from about 2017, schools have been guaranteed some sort of money, uh, and it is helpful, but there's so much to cap on, uh, catch up on, we're so way behind. So, a little bit of history there just uh, for those of you who may not have uh, tuned into previous episodes i've tried to keep it as short as i can and but it has taught us that the government didn't plan for technology properly and when they finally came to the table they were already too late in 1997. Uh, by 2005 um, they were probably already 10 years behind everyone else in the developed world and the lack of investment in infrastructure such as broadband and technical support has effectively kept us way behind everybody else and for some bizarre reason the government have invested in fast broadband uh, sorry a fast broadband at second level but not a primary level i i don't understand that but anyway that's not for this episode however the only reason we're still not in the dark ages is that schools like i said along with businesses took on technology themselves and they made the best of a really bad situation because there was no funding there was no problem for schools because they had cake sales and at the time, they also had Tesco vouchers. I've forgotten about that. And uh, they helped pay uh, for the technology that schools so badly needed um, and wanted. So really, where has this left us? Well, to be honest, it's a total mess. Um, because the government was so late to the table when they got there, um, um things were, I, I don't know, irretrievable maybe a little bit. I don't. Maybe that's harsh. But anyway, when, anyway, when they finally got there, um, they also completely messed it up. Um, because initial training was terrible. The focus of early training was all on computer skills rather than pedagogy. And even today, if you ask principal at ICT, you'll always hear them say, not always, most of them must be interested in coding, iPads, VR headsets, which are all fine. But the problem is they're not looking at the pedagogy behind them. It's all about coding by numbers, so copying down bits of code and coding pieces, usually in Scratch, which in a way is like um, teaching art through paint by numbers long lists of apps that are loosely connected education for example i i saw i saw several lists it wasn't just one list but it certainly was associated with the government recommending a game called cut the rope to support the sese curriculum it's a game and it it's not it's so loosely connected uh, it's not even connected to the sese curriculum i mean just because it teaches it doesn't even teach angles you use angles maybe to win the game but it's not a anyway uh, and anyway vr is probably just the new bosco uh, magic door that they haven't really figured out what to do with but it does look cool which is all that matters anyway the most annoying thing of all is these all of these tools can be amazing methodologies for learning and note i've said methodologies um, because that's what technology does it gives new methodologies these tools which they are called which are give great and amazing methodologies coding is really really useful for example It helps children break down problems into tiny little pieces and gives them the opportunity to create something new that solves a problem. Now, I've used two very important uh, uh, words in that sentence, to break down problems and to create something new. So uh, So what they're doing is they're using critical thinking and creativity. I'm going to give you an example of if you needed to teach someone who didn't know how to jump, how to jump, how would you teach them to jump? you need to break it down into little pieces and i know um, if people are doing physical literacy programs that's what they do let's extend this further how about you get a child to create a game that teaches a particular sound let's say the letter p or the sound ha i'm using a uh, i, I had to choose the letter p of course when i have a microphone that blocks out p sounds so we'll try a different one uh, so what what could you do then to teach um the the sound s and all the different different objects what game could you make to do that? Take it further again. Let's try and create a classic video game, Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, whatever it is. Push it again further. Recreate a video game, but change one aspect of it, and so on. Can we see what we're doing here? The skill isn't actually the coding, because coding's easy enough once you know how to do it. The skill is in the new level of thinking. The thing is, there are so many ways to code that it's overwhelming. You could use Scratch, you could use C++, you could use any kind of language you want. We need something standard for teachers, not the, not the language, I'm not really interested in that. I'm not advocating, and also not advocating making a curriculum for technology. In fact, if one good thing the government did, it was not to make ICT a curriculum subject. ICT is a methodology, so we need good standardized frameworks that fit into the actual curriculum and make sure that schools are doing it. It isn't a crazy notion, like, it not to, to do this, to make this framework that fits in curriculum. Ashter does this at infant level already. If you look at Ashter that's what it is. Aster isn't a subject. And when it's done properly, it's an excellent framework of methodologies that cover the entire infant curriculum through play. Now, in fairness, the rollout of Aster has been terrible, but the actual framework is decent. But I hear you say, isn't there a digital learning framework out there? Aha, yes, yes, there is. And while Ashter has been dreadfully rolled out, it actually is a very, very good framework. Sadly, the digital learning framework not only has been very poorly rolled out, it's also a dreadful framework. It is bland, it's verbose, it's vague. And honestly, I'd argue that it could be used as a framework for absolutely anything, not just technology. I'll just go through the six, um, I suppose, the six parts of this framework. It's the planning cycle uh what you do is you identify a focus gather the evidence that's number two three analyze and make judgments four write and share and report an and improvement plan um five put improvement plan into action and lastly monitor actions and evaluate impact and then you go back to identifying the focus and go around again yeah so i mean i've given a few talks about this uh digital framework um, and it gets me into a bit of trouble at times but i you know i i have to say I, I don't really care because i think if something is bad it's okay to say it's bad and this is a bad framework um i can use this planning cycle to buy a dog um and i often do the stories you can you, i may have done this already on, on on a podcast before i can't remember but basically i'm going to i'm going to go through how i buy a dog using the digital learning planning cycle Okay, so one, identify. I, I identify a focus. I want to buy a dog. That's my focus. Okay, I need to gather the evidence. I have money. I have space in my house and garden. I like dogs. I also want a dog. I have evidence. Now I need to analyze and make judgments. The above criteria seems good. So my judgment is, it seems good. Okay. Um, I need to write and share a report and an improvement plan. So, I basically, you can take, you can trust me that I've shared this. I've written a report outlining why I should buy a dog and how it would improve my life. And I trust me that I've done that and I've shared it as well. Okay. Next, I need to put the improvement into action. So, I, I buy the dog. I bought the dog. Um, now, I need to monitor actions. Now, the actions I'm monitoring, uh, my dog seems to be weeing all over the house and he also keeps growling at me. Hmm. Okay. I'm gonna still monitor actions here. I'm giving him uh, some CPD, um, dog training. Um, Now, I'm gonna monitor the actions and evaluate the impact of these actions. My dog is no longer weeing or growling. This is good. So there we go, I've done that. Uh, So I've completed the six things, so I need to re-identify a focus. I think I will consider buying another dog. Look, you get the picture. I mean, you can use this for technology as well, but if you can use that for (laughs) buying a dog, I don't know it's so vague um, that um that i think we need a better plan there's also the other problem is that there's loads of key actions which are equally vague um i'm not even gonna bother listing them because they're they're that you you if you're not bored already you know, I can guarantee you, you, you'll switch off. And I honestly can't understand how it turned out this way because the solution is so simple. It's, it's really simple. We need to standardize somewhat how we deliver technology in schools. and that doesn't mean that we, you all use the same hardware and the same tools, but we can certainly use the same methodologies. If you went into two different schools, You're unlikely to see completely different methodologies of teaching maths or English or art or any subject, even if they might be using different tools. And it's similar for technology. We already know the methodologies, but we need to help teachers use them. And what are they? Well, they can be summarised in the four Cs. I mentioned these before. This is basically the 21st century version of the three R's. Creativity, collaboration, critical thinking, and communication. This is what ICT allows in ways that other methodologies restrict. They can't do them as well. And the current framework has six very, very vague planning parts. And my alter, I've basically developed my alternative framework. It, I didn't need a glossy booklet for it because it fits in three sentences. It's basically three focused questions. And here they are. What do we want the children to learn? That's step one. Number two, how can ICT support it? And three, where can I get the ICT? Now, I do get there's a problem with this framework, because you know, it's short, um, but apart from that, all teachers, the actual biggest problem is all teachers can definitely answer question one. What do we want the children to learn? But can they answer question two? How can we get ICT to support it? After all, I've been arguing that we haven't taught teachers how to use technology properly with a pedagogical angle. So I suppose at this point, you think I might have a suggestion to solve problem two. After all, isn't that the point of this podcast? And naturally, of course, I think I have a solution. And that is to get your champions in. And fully enough, this is already happening. The thing is, the solution's already there. At the moment, for example, There is a really interesting project happening and it's being supported by the government it's the digital cluster project i don't think it's called the digital cluster project. i can't bring myself to calling it anything else but it's a digital cluster project where groups of schools are working together on ict projects the projects are attempting to utilize technology in different ways and this might be um things like using lego for constructionist learning so for example to build a robot that can fetch small items using lego pieces and programming or there could be the use of sensors to measure weather patterns or wind speeds or all that kind of stuff and predict weather or they could get a bunch of schools to collaborate online to create a number of lessons on a curriculum subject that's that's our project um anyway it will be interesting to see the outcomes of this particular um, idea it's been supported by the uh, by the government and it actually isn't the first time this has happened in 1998 there was a project called the sip project schools integration project i think is that what that stood for and it was probably the best use of technology where schools were showcased what could be done with this new thing called the internet and it, it there was a range of different things like web quests which sounds very old fashioned to thin client solutions which is also a little bit old fashioned but also a super project led by tom mcfadden which i think is probably the greatest uh, project done with ict ever in uh, in this country i don't, I don't say that lightly We'll just delve a little bit deeper in how we can use my framework, the three questions, to actually make a difference. Because when we are introducing a tool such as a piece of technology into a lesson, we need to figure out how it can actually enhance that particular teaching point or learning outcome. And my first question in my framework simply asks that question. So let's say, and I'm going to use the new primary language curriculum here. So let's say you want children to be able to respond to this following aim in the primary language curriculum please don't get too bored use coherent sentences of increasing complexity with correct tense word order and sentence structure while using connectives and producing compound and complex sentences to elaborate appropriately that is one of the first aims of the uh, junior of the infant part of the new primary language curriculum i mean i think it's a crap curriculum um but it's what we have so we'll have to have a look at this really verbose and vague outcome and come up with what we actually want to teach so let's just make it easy and see if we can get a child to give a short report of the news from his or her world okay so basically that ticks the box of that particular um long-winded uh curricular how can technology help here well for one the child can record their voice so we can establish whether or not he or she can do that using coherent sentences of increasing complexity with correct tense word order (sighs) anyway what do we need for this well we need something to record their voice a recording device and maybe a phone or a laptop or something that records audio okay now the next part is to get a video of somebody doing this and then share that with the world on an established website which basically shows this is actually how you do that first point on the curriculum there this is how you this is an example of somebody doing a, a teaching oral english um using the um using an au- uh, using audio recording uh basically technology and uh, uh with a with a good pedagogical um outcome um and we need somebody to do that and just share that they've done it that's all and the website basically should be a portal which should be very easy to navigate so if effectively you're looking how do i use audio recording in my classroom you should be able to um be, be able to find that very easily for example all the records or all these all these examples should be linked into different categories so the curriculum subject obviously the strand or the class level um, te- the technology tool used so in this case order recording and keywords or tags so basically um, it should be the news or I suppose might be a keyword or whatever it might be so basically when I'm searching through the possible thousands of examples that will be up there I can shorten that list according to my needs by filtering using those, uh, using those particular categories. And if something doesn't exist, for example, I look for, for that and that just doesn't happen to be there as a video uh, or an example, then a request can be put in for it to happen. It seems so easy. I mean, I, 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 no wonder the government aren't doing it. And it's not as if this is a crazy idea. The government are actually doing it, to be fair, in a different way, through SkullNet. SkullNet does this through their pathways function. A pathways function is a very interesting concept by SkullNet. It's probably underused. But if you ever go on a SkullNet or PDST course, participants, if you do the course, you actually have to use that function as part of your course it's part of the any ICT related courses you have to make a pathway for the portal and uh, thus you're helping other teachers by doing that so you come up with a lesson idea and you, uh, and you uh, point uh, pinpoint uh, d- uh, different websites that will help they're called pathways uh, to, to achieve that aim so they're kind of like links to different websites uh, for a lesson so it's an easy and clever way to gain your content i suppose for free um from teachers which is which isn't a bad thing i mean we should be sharing our practices um, and the same could really be done for this framework however relying on teachers on online summer courses to build up a website is grand and it sure is grand but in fairness it does need to be moderated and um, because you know teachers on, on on no offense to teachers because you know we have to do what we have to do you're not going to uh, not every teacher on a summer course an online summer course in particular is going to make the best effort uh, to create uh, a pathway um to a lesson plan on something that might not be related to the course that they're actually doing at all but they uh, but they may do it just to tick the box in order to pass the uh, the um the particular course um i'm actually involved in a digital cluster that's doing this very very thing um i'm moderating um a project um too i'm i'm leading one of the projects basically what teachers do is they develop lessons for the learn together curriculum which must include some sort of digital integration and once a lesson is done it's posted up uh, for moderation and I either post it um, on the website I make some changes and then post it up on the website or I reject it and pass it back to the person to tell them to change what they're doing so who's gonna do this work you might ask well the answer also lies in history and it's not the not a very distant history it's the ICT advisor who used to work in the education centers And once the recession came along, the ICT advisors and education centres were sent on their merry way and they've never, ever been replaced again. And these advisors were always on hand to help answer any ICT-related questions at the time and they supplied a huge amount of CPD and were almost like a tech support help desk, although obviously limited by the fact that it was only one person covering a multitude of counties. But now is a very good time to reintroduce those 10 positions on a full-time basis and creating content for this web portal might be one of those duties. They'd also have to be responsible for trying to get content from schools. And I also think they could do a lot of work that they're already doing beforehand. However, before I leave it at that, I think their job could be even more powerful than, uh, than this. And this is where the second part of my argument would be if I was the Minister for Education. It's standardization. Now, I really hate the word standardization and I rebel against it in most cases. However, when it comes to technology in schools, we need to have some sort of standard way we use technology. It's not okay that everybody does everything completely differently. There has to be some sort of minimum uh, um, sort of requirement or standard. And this is really in order to keep costs down um, and to keep quality and robustness high. And at the moment when schools have money for ict they can do whatever they want with it really there is a procurement process but i know very very few schools that abide by it because the procurement process rarely gives the best value um, and this is where i think we need to look back at the sip project i mentioned before the sip um, project from 1998 the Thin client dublin bay project from tom mcfadden and i think we need to bring that into the 21st century we need to look at the needs of 21st century schools Number 1 we need broadband. I mean that's that's absolutely uh, crystal clear. And there's and obviously um, the education centers aren't going to be able to provide the broadband, but certainly um every single school in the country is capable of receiving um fast broadband now. Um the minimum capacity for any school now um should be 100 uh, megs of broadband. Um it can be got in a multitude of ways um and there may be very very few um Kind of areas of the country where this is impossible and generally and also with the new government uh, broadband plan um schools should be absolutely priority pri- prioritized to be the hubs where um this sort of stuff comes through and I think I've mentioned this or I will be mentioning this in a in a future podcast so that is a need, and every school needs to have this at a minimum because if we don't have broadband, this falls um next is um what the thin client project also did was it had a central portal of software. Uh, The schools could just use. So basically, just I mean, for those of you don't who just to summarize what happened was, uh, all schools had these things called dumb terminals. There was nothing on them. All they did was they connected up to the central server that was somewhere in a big uh, in a big office, I think. And basically, once they logged in, they were basically uh, uh, once they uh, once they turned on their computer, they logged into this server. So they were a client, a thin client of this server, and everything they saved actually didn't save onto the actual computer they were using. It saved into a big server somewhere else. It's very like cloud computing, what we know as cloud computing today. Most people don't save their work on their computer anymore. They save it somewhere on the cloud. And basically what the cloud provides is different apps now. So when you, look at, when you actually do anything on Google uh, G Suite for education, um, you are basically using apps like word processors, spreadsheets, uh, something similar to um, uh, slideshows, I suppose, and, and various other things. When you're playing a lot of games, they're all online games. Um, so the, everything is stored on the cloud. Basically, that's what it was doing. And that's still a requirement for schools. There would be a central portal of software available for schools to use and um, we'd also need technical support all schools require tech support when things go wrong now i believe again it's very it should be very easy if this works to provide a remote uh technical support so if schools are hooked up to their local education center with their technology then if anything goes wrong the education center tech support team should be able to hook up to your computer um via the internet and try and fix it they won't need to leave uh, the base and if on the on the odd time and and, and this is not an all ca- uh, this is in fewer of the cases um, they, they they may be able to uh, l- come to your school to fix uh, bigger problems but most technical support problems can actually be done remotely and quite quickly um, Another uh, need uh, that schools uh, might have in the 21st century is to have a central base for hardware so which might include laptops, Chromebooks, tablets, photocopiers and sco- rather than schools going off to private uh, entities private companies to buy uh, their 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 hardware why not have a system a kind of a rental system a, li- a library system, a bar not even a rental system because it should be free um, and a library system for technology for hardware that you ask for what you need and you get it and basically if there's a kind of stuff that isn't standard so things like robots or vr or things like that these places, these education centers could have samples of those and schools could apply to try them out. And this isn't unusual. They did, the education centers do this all the time. Um, I've uh, borrowed Lego kits from my local education center several times um, and uh, with no problems. So these are needs of 21st century uh, things. And obviously this requires people. Now, I don't know how many people it would require in the education center for this, but I don't imagine it would be loads of people. I think the technical support team would be the biggest outlay, but I can imagine that with remote support, most things can be resolved without leaving the center and bigger problems could be solved uh, even even bigger problems don't have to be um, a big deal where someone has to spend a whole day in a school. What they can do is they can arrange for um if if they can't resolve it could be a system where laptops or pieces of hardware could be um swapped in and out by uh, b- uh by the education center so for example um the education center could pop over to the school with a spare laptop swap it in uh, for the one that isn't working bring it to base try and fix it and then bring it back or it could be you could use some sort of postal system for a courier system for this kind of thing i mean sure people will wait 48 hours i think for um a, a, a for, for a particular massive problem i mean at the moment schools could be waiting for months before anything happens um but um, i honestly i'd be happy to be to be trading my ict ground every year for a scheme like this that effectively i have a library of stuff that i can get um, and um i can just get it when i need it and if it breaks i don't know i'm not i i, I can always uh, get it fixed remotely or i can get a swap in swap out but i'll never own any of the stuff i don't really own it anyway because i'm a principal of a school i don't own the hardware the school owns it Um so Look anyway, I might't have the other thing is obviously i 'm not going to have full autonomy over what equipment I could have, but these days, almost almost everything a teacher needs is basically an internet connect device of any type to do most of what they need to do. OK, so let 's say this is a goer let 's say this is actually a solution that we have a centralized place for everything okay so all we ne- we no longer have to buy our own technology it's all in a central place all support is rem- is done centrally everything is done centrally so what do we do with all the equipment we already own okay because obviously if we converted this tomorrow all schools have loads of technology and some of it's okay like some of it's usable could there be some sort of program that we transition to this new system and anything new that can be that that is gotten basically from from the education centers It's basically gotten through the education centers and anything bought outside of it isn't covered by the system so basically ultimately we'll have probably a five to ten year period where we'll have spare bits and pieces lying around schools but effectively once they're gone there should be some system for removing them and use and utilizing them maybe sending them off to charities like camara um who who might be able to uh use the pieces of equipment uh, even though they might be old um But basically, after about five to ten years, every school should have access to a centralised system uh, for their needs. Now, how do we share what's needed for schools? Well, again, this will need a bit of input. But there's no reason why there shouldn't be a laptop for every teacher in your school. So you say, listen, I have 18 teachers in my school. You should get 18 laptops delivered. Um, I, I would think it's fair... In a primary school, anyway, at least, that it, there should be a device for every two pupils in the school because, again, we wanted them to collaborate. There's no point in everyone being on a one-to-one device. That doesn't make sense. So at least one between two pupils. So if you've got a 300-pupil uh, school, you get got 150 uh, devices. And schools should be able to choose uh, what devices they are. Um, I also think, rather than us going off and renting out networked photocopiers, um, that, again, this should, be, this should be part of it. So for every six classrooms, I think that's fair, maybe, or for every corridor, I don't know, there should be a network photocopier printer which again can be uh, supported by the local education center i also think there should be an uh, interactive whiteboard in every classroom or maybe a projector certainly in every classroom and then schools could apply for kind of bonus items like robotics equipment and things like that much like a library um you know and basically the centers could also provide all the apps all the software and if an app wasn't available there could be a system to allow for schools to request them and get them when they're available and i think that's pretty reasonable they would go through some monitoring process i mean let's say everybody wanted to use jolly phonics software well i mean most schools do want to use jolly phonics software so again the education center would apply for the license to provide that to all schools and we could just access it but let's say there's a specific piece of software that someone needed to use for a specific um disability or whatever it doesn't have to be a disability well i mean we, we, there's definitely systems that can be used for that. Again, there's no reason why if they're good, um, they can be used. It also prevents wasting money on things that aren't really, um, needed. Um, in terms of assistive technology, though, and moving on to that because uh, sometimes there are children that require specific technology. Rather than all the form-filling and hassle that schools have to go through to actually get these things, the education can actually be used to provide what's needed um, to all pupils with additional requirements. And again, it would save loads of time as the centres would take over all the procurement stuff. Uh, that's, getting your three random quotes. And there'd be a guarantee that the people get what they actually needed. So either, either your occupational therapist might uh, decide that they uh, require a particular um, tool, like for, uh, an adaptive keyboard or whatever it might be, and the education center's responsibility to get that and get it to the school simple it cuts out lots of uh, lots of middlemen so how would we deal with uh breakages and damage because of course if uh the department are, or if the centers are providing the uh, laptops are we going to be are we going to be very careful with them are we going to be careless with them well how does any other agency deal with this kind of thing we're not the only um group of people that get our technology provided for us and um, it obviously has to be factored in and i believe all of this can be done by this ICT advisor in the education centre, who could lead this team of technical support, repair people, and all this kind of uh, thing, and all the funding for ICT could then be diverted straight to the education centres instead of schools directly. You could so let's say there's 50 million euro being given to schools. Rather than doing that, just give the 50 million between the uh, education centres and let them provide um, the required technology and the power of. Um, I suppose the, uh, what, what do they call it when you buy lots of things in bulk you get a bigger, bigger discount and again, people are going to be fighting tooth and nail to be the ones who are um, providing the equipment to schools so again, it makes sense in a, in a lot of ways just one, one little point about printing this is something I'm not actually 100% sure about now, I mean, fair enough, the Education Centre I do agree that the Education Centre should provide printers for schools so like photocopiers basically that are networked but, but what I don't know is the toner bit and the paper bit and i uh, managing i suppose the um, environmental aspect of that now part of me thinks that every school should get a fair allocation of toner from their education center and schools basically buy their own paper and they work away and if the school runs out of toner before their replenishment time they're going to have to buy it um from the education center preferably and um, probably actually prob- i think that would be fair and i think that makes some sense and others might disagree and say the schools should just simply pay for their toner and paper themselves and charge um, their teachers locally for all that. Now, I'm more in favour of the former uh, than the latter. Um, and there's probably other solutions, but it is something to consider. Obviously, this is every idea has imperfections, and um, I'm pretty sure there's several imperfections in my idea. But um, I do think um, that's a minor one. Um, and this idea of having centralised hubs for all ICT requirements would not only save a fortune, It also would ensure, and this is where I think this is the most important bit, because saving a fortune is fine. Every school had whatever hardware and software they need and they'd always be up to date because they would never actually own anything. Um, Because once um, your piece of hardware runs out of juice, you just simply swap it out for a new one from your education center. You never own it because you're always swapping out and, and the education center are always recycling and recycling and, and, get and making things better or even increasing the capacity of your, um, of your various um, devices. And in fact, they may not even have to re- uh, re- remove the actual laptop. They may send um, extra memory or extra power or whatever it might be. And it also would ensure consistency better tech support, and a better service. And ultimately, because technology changes so quickly, it makes sense to outsource it to experts that can run the whole thing centrally. Not only can they provide all the hardware, they can also ensure that the hardware can be used appropriately to ensure good pedagogy, as we saw before I moved on to hardware. The entire curriculum can be mapped to use technology well, and we've seen an example of that in action. Yes, we'd certainly lose autonomy in terms of what we can buy and what we can use, but with a little bit of flexibility, I trade in the current approach we have and swap it for a centralised model. Perhaps this idea could be extended to other areas of the curriculum, I, I don't know. And However, something that really needs to be done in terms of technology is this. We need to cut out the belief that some teachers have that they aren't any good at technology, and we need to show them how good they can be when they're being supported. <coughs> On next week's show, the Teaching Council released a document stating that teachers should ensure that any communication with pupils or students, colleagues, parents, school management and others is appropriate, including communication via electronic media such as email, texting and social networking sites. This was in 2012. The key word in that paragraph for me was others because I believed it would mean that anything we posted online could be used against us in our private lives. And sure enough, on the 14th of April 2019, almost seven years after the day it was released, the Teaching Council published guidelines for teachers about appropriate social media usage. In next week's episode I'll be arguing that we should allow teachers to use social media as they see fit and what I would do if I were the Minister for Education. As always thank you very much for listening uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast whatever platform you're using. Um, I hope you enjoyed uh, this week's um, episode about uh, with a technological uh, sort of flavor to it and um, we'll be staying with that flavor next week and uh, maybe moving on to something totally different the week after that anyway take care and we will talk to you again next week thanks a bye bye